talking. I hear two guys 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 talking. They all wear uniforms. They're honored to wear the badge. They defend life and property and carry guns. While they're often called superheroes, they, in the end, are humans, just like you and I. This is WhatCopsWatch.com. I'm Captain Chris Giuseppe. I'm an author, a screenwriter, and I've been in law enforcement for over 20 years. I'm Mike Wilkerson, the media generator with thousands of entertainment podcast reviews across a decade plus, loaded and ready for bear. The television programming is out there. The feature films are bigger, more action-packed than ever, and out there too. It's a growing world of media, both on and offline, but what do cops watch? Get ready to cross the yellow podcast tape and learn more about the thin blue line. It's time for another episode of WhatCopsWatch.com. The law, the city of Boston, crime, and the progress of solving it. The value of perspective reviews via Two Guys Talking is being able to examine a film long after it's been done at the theater and and even after home availability on DVD and Blu-ray as well as electronic downloads arrive and disappear. Tonight, the Two Guys Talking podcast plows through a literal trifecta where a new podcast launches, another perspective review is established, and a new mini-series of reviews also gets a wondrous, watery start. Tonight, we take the time to put Mystic River, 2013, directed by Clint Eastwood, into the perspective review crosshairs, but also inside the launch of WhatCopsWatch.com and inside the Two Guys Talking Wicked Smut review series, grabbing the focus of Boston-based crime movies, because it's time for the Two Guys Talking Perspective Review of Mystic River here on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Greetings, everybody. I'm Mike Wilkerson, one of your hosts. And I'm Chris DiGiuseppe. And Chris, it's great to have you here. This is the first time you are sitting in the opposing chair as a host here during WhatCopsWatch.com. Absolutely. I know I've been on with you know some of the myth-busting and that, but it's exciting to be here and co-hosting. Yeah, it, it's super exciting. I can't wait for your perspective inside of this, uh, this feature film, but also in front of a whole bunch of other stuff that's coming up via Two Guys Talking. First, a quick little bit of housekeeping. The Scammer Cast. Now, Chris, you and your law enforcement experience have probably dealt with a lot of people that are scammers. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there, there's new and creative ways to scam people that come out every day. Yeah, And yeah. Uh, there's uh, there's lengthy uh, things that we put up online to try to uh, protect people and such, but uh, as uh, technology improves, the scammers improve also. They do, and a new piece of technology to combat the scammers is a new podcast on my network, Two Guys Talking Podcast Network, called The ScammerCast. The ScammerCast is dedicated to providing information to people who are caretakers of the elders to make sure that they don't get taken advantage of. I want everyone to go and check it out right now over at ScammerCast.com. And more importantly, make sure you drop some feedback to the people that make that podcast so that they know more about your situation as well as the situations that the elders around you face and experience so that they can add that into their collective growing database of detail about scammers worldwide. You can find out more over at scammercast.com. The Field of Dreams Perspective Review. 
in 2015, we're going all out inside of perspective reviews and a new podcast on the network is called two guys talking baseball.com. And over there, we did the first perspective review of what is probably, if not the best, one of the best baseball movies, field of dreams, which actually is kind of a ghost story. Um, so it's something that uh, my co-host Vic Porcelli and I debated inside of that review. Make sure you check that out over at twoguystalkingbaseball.com. It's super deep. It is lengthy, but wow, the results really are a home run. Twoguystalkingbaseball.com. So Chris, let's get to the detailed perspective review of Mystic River, directed by Clint Eastwood, 2003. Two guys talking, Mystic River. The hype. Now, Chris, you knew nothing about this movie until just recently, I think, right? You know, actually what happened was I had seen this movie a long time ago, Mm -hmm. forgotten that I had seen it. And And seen it on DVD or at home, something? Right, Okay. DVD or Uh or, or on cable, I believe, and Mm -hmm. went back, got it up on Netflix, and as I started watching, it looked familiar, Mm -hmm. and then in the end, I realized that I had seen it before. And when you realized that you'd seen it before, did you realize the general story and the outline of the movie? I did, yeah. It kind of came back to me, and uh, it was um, was a good good review to, uh, because I I hadn't seen it in a while, so um, to kind of refresh my memory about the plot and... and, uh, storyline and such well strangely enough i too did not see this until it came out on dvd and i'm talking years later maybe mm-hmm. 2009 you know long long time ago and that's when i know i have found little pieces of gold mm-hmm. when i can see them after a long time after they've been in the theater even especially ones that i didn't even hear of and that that's a strange one for me because one clint eastwood directing right. giant bonus that right. you look at the cavalcade of people that are inside this movie. Sean Penn, Tim Robbins, Lawrence Fishburne, Kevin Bacon, Laura Linney, uh, all of them. They're all in this movie, and I don't know where I was when this came out. You know what it may be? The actual date of his release was October 8th. Let's see, 2003. So that was the first, that was the year I had my daughter. We had her in June. And so I was probably in the throes of taking care of a wee child is where I was when it came out in the theater. So that's why I didn't see it. But the, I, I don't have any hype, actually. And that's where we ask you, the the listening audience, when do you remember hearing about Mystic River or anything before the movie came out? Let us know what you think by going over to twoguystalking.com. Click on the contact button on the top right-hand side of the page. Fill out the quick web form and let us know when you remember hearing about Mystic River. Two guys talking, Mystic River. The money. So just about every movie we review at Two Guys Talking, especially in perspective review, is usually a corn combine of cash. And you as the co-host always fall into the department of guessing exactly how much money, or not, this film made. So any guess in regard to domestic take for this film? Um, I don't know, 50 million, 50 million, just a bit under was $91 million. Wow. Uh, Yeah. That's a huge, that's a huge movie opening up in October Mm -hmm. and uh, that it made that is uh, extraordinary, but wonderful also because I love it when people that I really revere in filmmaking are able to make a big giant ton of money. Mm -hmm. That's always exciting. I love it. How about foreign? Any idea? 
50 million? I don't know. I'll stick with the number. 50 million. Again, just a little bit under $67 million. That's great. The total world take is $157 million. So again, uh, especially for as much as this movie ended up costing, which was just $25 million. $157 million is a corn combine of cash. I'd take it. Uh, and it's a, a definitive success both in the box office but also from a perspective of filmmaking. Uh, it, it, yep. it has robust points. Pace is wonderful inside the film. It's a little bit dreary, but we're going to get more into that as we progress. Two guys talking. Mystic River. The good. Your best friends back then. So do you remember having three best friends that hung around and played stick hockey or street hockey or sure what did yeah. what did your what did your friends do when you were that age you know most of the time and, and, and times are different now but most of the time you know we would uh, we would be off uh running up and down the creeks trying to catch frogs or uh you know we were out in the common ground digging a hole and mm-hmm. you know so on and so forth but we were hunting dragonflies dragonflies sure we'd uh, try and knock dragonflies down with rocks right yeah. right exactly yeah. and we were you know we were you know, a half a mile from home, a mile, you know, whatever it was, mm-hmm. or, you know, our parents didn't, you know, didn't worry about us and so forth. And times have just changed, you know. I, oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I look around today and it's like, boy, I don't want to let my kid out of my front yard or backyard. No, it's true. I've got an 11 year old right now. And one of the things we have never done is just let her run ever. And I can remember when I was her age that I would be out at all hours forever doing right. whatever I wanted with whomever I wanted. Right. No doubt about it. Uh, if I didn't come home, I would call my mom and say, staying over at Jeff's. And then we would just stay out until all hours and until we felt like just going back in and we watch some TV and have some popsicles and we'd go to bed and sleep until 11 or whatever it was, if it was during the summer. And it is completely different now. It is. Uh, the, 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 the fact that we look at child abduction in the very first beginning moments of this film right. is a perfect depiction of right. what all of us are horrified by and have that innate fear as a parent. Now, you've got smaller kids than I do, right? Are, are yeah. yeah, I mean, I have, I, have, I have five children, and they range all the way from uh, one who's uh, 22 all mm-hmm. the way down to uh, seven. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, I mean, I have a wide range. And it's, you know, I don't know if it's just because of my profession that it's brought it out to where it's more prevalent, mm-hmm. but I, I think it's the times where, you know, we see more of these uh, attempted abductions and child abductions it does strike fear in the yeah. hearts of parents yeah i mean everybody is serious about it and and you know kids are staying inside playing the video games and parents are like you know that's okay they can watch <laughs> the dvd they can play the video game yeah i'd rather have them here i can see them yeah you know than yeah. uh, out in the next court over playing stickball the law about pretending to be a cop now, inside of your jurisdiction, what exactly are the rules about having a badge on your waist or driving around a car that has silver hubcaps? There's there's no rules about it. I mean, you can you can have a uh, you could have a badge on your waist. You know, I'm, I'm many times I'm in plain clothes and such, mm-hmm. and we have detectives, you know, that that will have a badge. But it's like we tell kids these days because that is a concern and a threat. Oh yeah, and we tell adults every police officer has to have an identification card. That is what really sets you aside as a police officer not that so gold, there's a card that, that says i am badge. a cop of blah yeah there absolutely a there's okay. a card and, it, and and on the back it's uh, typically signed by the the chief of police mm-hmm. or or you know there's some type of uh, seal on it and so forth just like your driver's license but that is actually what designates you as a police officer that's the important thing it's not the badge 
Oh, that's so. very interesting. <laughs> I find that terribly interesting. That's very cool. And what is the, okay, I'm, I have a badge and I have it on my waist and I show up at someone's door and I knock on the door and I go, hello, I'm, I'm detective Wilkerson and I would like to come into your house to check out your television. And so what is the, what am I looking at in regard to breaking laws and what's the, you're well, going I mean, to jail you're, for? In, you know, impersonating a police officer mm-hmm. would be the law that you would be, uh, breaking and then whatever else that would lead to you know if you took somebody into custody if you detain them you could you know could be in violation of assault or felonious restraint Mm -hmm. you know i can tell you from being in law enforcement uh, for so long that uh, that is a crime that we take seriously if we have somebody that's impersonating a police officer because that can lead to all kinds of different avenues sure uh, and all of them bad advantage of people (laughs) certainly certainly yeah and and so i mean what you guys catch me for being impersonating a police officer and what is the what is the you get to go to court and get for that do you have any idea i have i do not know off the top of my head i have to look up the state statute Mm -hmm. and um you know and it would it would depend on the other things that you had done Mm -hmm. you know i mean if certainly Kidnapping is a, uh, a huge charge. Oh yeah, assaulting somebody or, or felonious restraint—you know—it's they're felony charges. So mm-hmm. very interesting. Very interesting. The stats about getting into a vehicle and surviving. Now I know I'm putting you on the spot, yeah. mostly because I don't provide the notes of any of my perspective reviews to my co-host intentionally, mm-hmm. and it's not to make you look stupid. It's to literally give people that spontaneity of Have you ever thought of that? And so what are, what, what are the... I'll, I'll have to take the stupid route. I have, <laughs> I have no idea what the stats are of yeah. surviving, you know, I, getting I, in the I car have, and surviving. I have heard a variety of things, and depending on which internet site you pull up currently as you're mm-hmm. listening to this podcast, you'll find a variety of numbers. But the bottom line is, don't get in the vehicle. Don't get in the car. Don't get in the vehicle. It, it is one of the most fundamental things that I do remember, even as a kid, when I was the kid, mm-hmm. that would have gotten in a vehicle or gone out at all hours or blah. Yeah, I, re- uh, I, re- I am incredibly social, and I was back then. Right. And so to know that you do not get into a vehicle, regardless of how old you are. Correct. Uh, you, you don't get in the vehicle because your survivability goes down a hundredfold right. uh, when you're in the vehicle. The horror of child exploitation and rape. Sadly, you can turn on just about every news channel, unfortunately, and if not every day, then every other day you can hear about yet another child molestation or some sort of uh, child being exploited and or raped or something else. Uh, This actually struck a tone that really made me interested in wanting to know more of your perspective as a police officer, but then also of other people that are inside of law enforcement's perspective on what I think is a fantastic movie. But where things like this really do provide a barrier for you and potentially other people. Tell me more. Well, I mean, as far as the movie goes, it's, it's um, you know, as I had talked to you off, off the air, starting out with a child abduction, mm-hmm. child molestation, I've seen so many of those real cases. Mm-hmm. It's not where I'm going to go for entertainment. Sure. It's one of those things where you don't want to relive that reality. Oh, yeah. And, and this movie had a lot of reality in yeah. it. Yeah. And it, as bad as you can imagine child molestation and pet you know pedophiles and and uh, people uh, who uh, molest kids and abduct kids and so forth the cases if you were to go over the case studies and take some of the training and, and such that we do you'd be horrified as to how bad it actually is mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and how shocking it actually is and uh, you know you get out of some of these courses you know after you review all these cases and you you go nobody's immune I mean as soon as you say, well, you know, at least we can kind of profile that 
sex offender, that uh, that predator. Mm -hmm. I will show you the 80-year-old grandmother that went out and molested her grandchildren. Mm -hmm. You know, it's there's always a case that goes against the norm, and it's like as soon as you say, well, at least this group of people will be safe. And that's what terrifies me as a parent. Sure. Well, and I think it terrifies every parent. Uh, I think uh, especially knowing how, how you want your children to be social. But you want them to be social, asterisk. Right. Because you want to have everything you possibly can about control over there being social. And unfortunately, it just does not exist. It, as much right. as you want to be able to lock your kids inside the house, but then somehow you go grab the, the sociability pill and right. give it to them and in addition to their video game playing, they also are able to have some social interaction. It doesn't always work that way. And yeah. that's why I think these, uh, these situations, in particular what is presented here inside of Mystic River, really are horrific. The statistics of getting a kid back then versus now. Now, I know that it is significantly changed. I think what we're looking at here is maybe the late 70s, maybe mid 80s, mm -hmm. playing in here, looking at the cars, mm -hmm. looking at some of the surroundings, the baseball cap type. So that's what we're looking at time-wise. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know that the numbers and the statistics are going to be significantly different now than then. But any idea about... No idea what the statistics are. I can tell you, though, with cases these days, the key is how fast you get the information out, how fast you uh, uh, disseminate that. I, I recall the case, uh, there was a case that happened in uh, county north of us, up I think it was Lincoln County, mm -hmm. where a uh, younger girl was taken, mm -hmm. and they actually recovered her you know, in a short amount of time because mm -hmm. there was so much media on it, so much attention to it that the guy got scared. Sure. Dropped her off at a car wash. And, um, you know, they they later found him. I believe he uh, took his own life. Mm -hmm. But that was successful. Mm -hmm. I mean, because there were no, so, many people, right. so many people that were looking for it. But it, you know, you know, getting getting a kid back after they've been taken, I, I wouldn't want to play the odds. Oh, who they're would, just, dude? They're, they're, Seriously. They're just... They're just not good. Well, and being taken is never a good thing anyway. Again, that goes back Correct. to the don't get in the vehicle part. Right. Uh, well, I think what we also have to look at, too, is the availability and the success of what has been the Amber Alert program. Right. Uh, that, uh, I think, outright, instantly, when all of us who now have cell phones, who right. and many of us have no landline anymore, right. when you can instantly make hundreds of thousands of people instantly aware that there is a child emergency right now, I call win all over that. And that is the difference between back then, where if you needed to make a phone call, well, I had to be at Jeff's house if I was going to have the phone answered. Because I didn't, there weren't, wasn't a, uh, you can call me at the pay phone next to the hot dog place. There wasn't anything like that. Um, half the places didn't have pay phones in them. And you couldn't use the phone inside of a facility because the manager wouldn't let you use the phone. So it has definitively changed and much for the better. But that's also why making sure that you don't get in the car is so incredibly vital. Right. And, you know, and your, your parent might expect you to take more time getting home. They might not even start looking for you back mm -hmm. when we were kids. Never. You know, my for mom a while. Would, yeah. You know, so yeah. And these days it's, you know, like I said, parents I, th are just I think more my vigilant. mom would get to about 10, 30 mm -hmm. or 11 and then she'd call, she'd mm -hmm. call directly over to Jeff's house. Right. And I'd have to apologize. Sorry, mom, I meant to call right. and we got playing pool or whatever. Right. And, uh, so yes, it, it is just definitively different than way back then compared to right now. The percentage of people that still live in the same neighborhood. Now, I am a perfect sample of this. 
I have never lived in a place except for St. Louis now for longer than four or five years. I've been in St. Louis now for over 20 years, but I did not grow up in St. Louis, anywhere near St. Louis, uh, in a variety of different towns, mostly in the North Midwest, but traveling everywhere from Tennessee to Chicago to Milwaukee to central uh, Wisconsin and then into St. Louis. And so uh, the depiction here and something that I think you marveled at a couple of times during this movie when you and I were bantering in the prelude was the community and what this community that's depicted here actually is, Mm -hmm. where it's not just a family. It is generations of family living usually in the same house. Right. Uh, Living multiple generations on top of each other inside the same house. Uh, I wouldn't call it, well, I would, you know, I would, I would call it alien, especially for someplace like St. Louis, Mm -hmm. but inside of Boston, it is still terribly prevalent. Um, as is a bunch of the other cool things we're going to talk about inside of this movie that we find. Ah, young love. You'll always find an element of Romeo and Juliet in a lot of really great films. But you find it here in that there is a hating father and a kind of loving parent slash mother. <laughs> not, not too much. <laughs> not really, not really. Uh, but, but there's lots of hate. I guess we can put right. it in that perspective. But the, the veil of young love here and how it is presented, I think, is wonderful, mostly because of the way it spins storytelling inside of this. You get to the point where you look at Brendan and, you know, he's devastated right. that she's gone. And that it's still an element that you don't know. Is it a great actor? Is this kid playing a wonderful, weepy, I can't believe she's dead role? Right. Or did he do it? And I love that uh, anywhere where you can layer storytelling, it is the thing that wonderful movies are made of. And they totally do it inside this film. And he put and he puts in there, like you said, Romeo and Juliet. It it is this tragedy. Yeah. You know, it is it is this this young love. And then. this life snuffed out, and, mm-hmm. you know, it follows those lines. So well, and, good then, stuff. and then lives snuffed out. And I'm not talking about right. Dave's who finally ends up dead. I'm talking about people that are still alive with their lives are snuffed out. Right. You really do get that here. And it's unfortunately terribly fitting for Boston. The value of shooting on location. Something that we'll talk about a lot during this perspective review is the commentary provided by wonderfully devoted Kevin Bacon and Tim Robbins inside of this. Uh, For those of you that haven't listened to it, the DVD and Blu-ray both feature it. Uh, The special edition DVD that I got actually includes a complete uh, special edition soundtrack as well. So you get a disc that's got the full special edition soundtrack, uh, the movie, and then the Blu-ray also. So it it's spectacular and it's got all this extra content. And inside of that, they literally talked about how there is something to filming inside of the city of Boston. And they're absolutely right. Any of the movies that we're going to talk about inside the Wicked Smart series of movies, they all feature Boston. And there is a flavor. There is a distinctiveness that's available. And I think anybody living in any city can take that perspective and slap it on. St. Louis is a really good example. Uh, The sample I would use is Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Now, you know, not every moment of that film was shot inside of St. Louis. However, the pieces that are shot in St. Louis, even this many years later, are still terribly indicative of St. Louis. The, The airport, even though it's had a bunch of massive revamps and a tornado, you can still look at it and go, hey, it's the St. Louis airport, awesome. Hey, it's the St. Louis airport right near Cypress Road. Awesome. You can see all of that inside of that, and it matters, and it really does change the perspective of how you see a film. 
The same thing happens here inside of Boston, where it's not just a bunch of brownstones that are made and you get to kind of go, look at Boston, wow. This is Boston. You get the bridges, you get the skyline, you get the the wonderfully homey, intimate streets from back then, but then also of the now asterisk. And they're presented wonderfully and make a, a, a just a perfect stadium to watch this sporting event that this movie's put in. Uh, the bar at the end, the uh, the Black Emerald that we'll talk about later. Uh, that one, I, you, you can't get any more, look at the taste of what this place looks like. You can you can see the the smoke coming off the smokestack of whatever the hell's being cooked inside the bar, uh, the, the water sparkling behind the guy that's going to get dead real soon. All of that is all flavor that's added into Mystic River. Meeting Fish and Sean Devine. Now again, we've talked about the commentary, and Lawrence Fishburne is referred to as Fish inside of that. Uh, which is, uh, again, the, you really do need to listen to the commentary. It's striking. They talk, about, um, they talk about the direction process. They talk about Clint Eastwood's direction. They talk about all of the memories, all of the, oh, I remember uh, this being the day, this is the last day I shot here. Uh, they talk about the mistakes that they make, which we're going to talk about in depth here. And this, uh, this relationship that you have between Lawrence Fishburne and Kevin Bacon's character, as you're introduced here, is incredibly dynamic. And is is it a good depiction of what you have seen inside of the law enforcement? You know, yeah, effort? I think so. I mm-hmm. think so. The 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 whole movie was uh, fairly uh, realistic as far as police procedural mm-hmm. goes. But yeah, the dynamic is good. You know, you've got a you've got a detective, and then you've got his sergeant. Mm-hmm. Because they're detectives, because they work kind of plain clothes. It's not you don't have necessarily that military type of you know yes sir no sir respect you know Mm -hmm. kevin bacon will get on uh lawrence fishburne throughout the movie Mm -hmm. you know and yell at him Mm -hmm. even and Mm -hmm. that banter kind of back and forth um yeah i think so i think it's real fitting the peril of closing public locations for movies now you've clearly closed public locations for any number of things like disasters or picking a kid out of the ice or whatever tell us the horrors of closing down a public area well it's, it's just a nightmare i mean it's uh you know, we can talk about uh, when we had the vice president and president come mm. through, mm-hmm. and that's just on the highway. Sure. And it's a complete nightmare. Yeah. They, they shut everything down. Mm-hmm. You have to uh, have all the overpasses and so forth cleared. It inconveniences people, and people oh, sure. are mad. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> you know, we, we, do a, uh, we do a triathlon out in our city, mm-hmm. and that closes roads down, too. Sure. And, and people just get impatient and mad and... Um, you know, it's just a nightmare. So I, I would imagine it's the same thing for the movies. Yeah. When they talk about it inside the commentary for this, uh, for Mystic River, and they talk about how they got a lot of hatred because they closed this giant bridge. <laughs> and yeah. that's not just a giant bridge. It is a main thoroughfare into and out of the city. And it was a big deal. Uh, thankfully, though, their city got the showcase and you were able to use the on-site locations. And again, it's magic inside of movie making when you can use the city and not a green screen or... Toronto that kind of looks like Boston. Ah, it's just wonderful to use it. Sowing the seeds of what in the hell storytelling. I love this entire story. And it's because it's it's layered. There's no doubt about it. There are 20 or 30 just visible layers. And then when you consider what's made by layering those stories, 
it's just wonderful. And I love that you can take bites out of any piece of the story and then ask yourself another question. And if you don't get an answer for it, it doesn't make you angry. It makes you want to know more about what's going on inside the story. And that's when I know that I've got a really good movie that I'm interested in. Even if you need to break it down for the police interaction breakdown parts, but then you start asking questions yourself. That's what storytelling is supposed to do, especially for a movie like this where it's not quite a mystery, but you don't really know what's going on even halfway through the film. And again, when you take the layered storytelling, you ask that you can have the audience asking their own questions inside of something like this. I you instantly have something that's interesting and engaging. Yeah, I agree. The And the appreciation that I have for the writing in it, when you take a story and you open a bunch of loops and you can interweave that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the trick is closing all those and the, the manner in which you uh, close those and tell that story. And this, this was, uh, this was just a great example of, uh, of some really good writing. A vehicle found dispatching a crime scene unit. So a vehicle's found, you dispatch a crime crime scene unit. Describe that. Yeah, you you know your initial responding officers are going to get on the scene. Mm -hmm. you, you obviously have a nine one one call that came in. Sure, it says there's blood in the car. Mm -hmm. So you're going to uh, try to preserve that scene. Mm -hmm. You know it was accurate. It was it they had uh, they had it all roped off and such. They had uh, quite a few people there. They had mm -hmm. a lot of personnel. Mm -hmm. And even the the scene with uh, them where Kevin Bacon says, you know, no keep you know yeah he he realizes that he. Uh, he recognizes the father of the uh, victim, mm -hmm. and he knew him as a child. And he says, "No, I don't want to talk to him right now. Keep him away. Keep him out of the crime scene." It's really accurate. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what you would want to do. You want to you want to keep people out of that crime scene so they don't taint it until you can figure out what's happening, and until you can figure out the scope, how big it is, because that crime scene in this in particular movie, this particular movie, stretched from that mm -hmm. car all the way. to to where they found that body in the park. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, real accurate, and um, I thought it depicted it well. Getting the call of wondering where your daughter is. Wait a second, the bed's not slept in. Now, I have the best daughter ever who will never have anything bad happen to her, so I'll never know what this experience is like. Correct, me too. <laughs> me too. And uh, it is the, you know, it's the ramp. It's the ramp to the horrific fate, and because I've seen this... I've probably seen this movie 20 times, uh, mm -hmm. whether it's playing on the background behind me while I'm doing work, which is, I think, how I love to watch slash listen to this movie. The movies that really do move me, I can listen to, and just knowing what I'm hearing in the background, I know where, where it is inside the process of the movie. And this is one of those, whether it's the lines of the film or the introduction of what we'll talk about later, the call that you hear inside of the soundtrack of this film. It's all wonderfully presented, and... I, I instantly know when this is coming, mm -hmm. and I still get the 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 shot up my spine when I think about it. You know, and and from the other perspective too, I know what it's like being on the other end of you know a death notification yeah. or when you have to go and give bad news. It's kind of another thing that kind of would take me away from watching a movie like this because of the reality. It's sure. it's a reality thing, and it's uh, it's a situation that you don't want to be in as a cop. Yeah. You don't want to go and tell somebody, hey, look, I think your child is missing. You know, I found their car. There's blood in their car. You know, you you don't it's it's a it's a situation that's not comfortable that you don't like to be in. And um, 
and again, they portray it in a very realistic fashion. So let's say a daughter is missing. How would that call go as you as a law enforcement officer? Well, you know, what we would what we would want to do is and see it's all it's it's kind of a balance. Sure. How much do you reveal? Sure. You know, we have this car mm -hmm. and we have blood all over. We obviously have, you know, a gunshot. Mm -hmm. Looks like a, a projectile went through the window mm -hmm. and then shortly thereafter you know, we find the body. Mm -hmm. So we're going to go back to the family, make notification. We have to um, have them positively ID the body. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we, we make that notification. We try to show, you know, compassion and empathy and help the family and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. But you also got to realize you've got a, a homicide investigation sure. going on. Sure. So what if that was one of the family members? Mm -hmm. Nobody's out of the mix. Mm-hmm. You know, right off the bat. So when I think that's what I really enjoyed that's the about balance. this. Yeah, when I really enjoyed this movie because it really does depict that. I don't yeah. think. Well, no, and I take that back. They, they do. They squarely put Sean Penn in under yeah. the microscope as sure. they're sitting inside the uh, um, the cafeteria of right. the uh, the hospital. And that back and forth was was really really good in my mm -hmm. opinion. I mm -hmm. like that. The uh, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more maybe, but you know, Lawrence Fishburne starts touching on that subject where he went to jail. He's an ex-con. You know, and he went to jail, and he gets very defensive, mm -hmm. and that would happen. Oh, yeah. But, you know, the follow-up to that, to get around that, is the explanation of, you know, hey, look, what if it was somebody that you went to jail with? Mm -hmm. What if, you know, what if we're looking at somebody out there? That's why I wanted to have this dialogue with you about your time mm -hmm. in prison. Mm -hmm. So, and they kind of went down that. They started down that, but it would be a very real thing to investigate that, mm -hmm. because he obviously had enemies, Oh yeah, and we and and you would obviously look at some of these people that perhaps he was in prison with that didn't like him. Mm -hmm. And I think that's wonderfully well presented. And again, the the pieces parts of this film that are depicted like that, I love. Mm -hmm. the, the as much as you know he loved his daughter, how much did he love his daughter? Right. Um, you know that he wasn't there; he was sleeping, obviously, because we see that in the timeline of the movie. But that they ask the question and that it provides super validity to the storytelling. I love that. A waft of sign language. Is it accurate or not? Now, you all just happen to benefit from the wonderful nature of one Chris DiGiuseppe, who used to be a sign language Oh, wait, that's me. Yeah, that's not me. I, I used to be a sign language interpreter, a certified sign language interpreter inside the city of St. Louis. And uh, I've known sign language since I was 16. So interacting with deaf people of all kinds and abilities inside of sign language. And the neat thing here is that the sign language is not just depicted accurately. It is depicted in the way that Brendan, the brother who is speaking sign language to his brother because he's a good brother. He speaks good brother sign language. He does. He is not proficient in any stretch. He's just proficient enough to get his concepts across, which is pretty much how it would work. Uh, there's going to be some stuff that he's very comfortable with, but deep conversation, you wouldn't really have it. Uh, in fact, you, you even see that at the, uh, towards you, you know, you get to the end and he's absolutely embroiled in passion of the love that he felt for his girlfriend and sign language goes out the window <laughs> right. completely. And it was great to see that they bothered to try to make it look real because there's nothing more frustrating than if you've got someone that let's say is from England and they try and put on an accent that is an American accent, except that something goes awry and they end up saying something that's colloquially English. And you're like, oh, come on. 
Right. Was, was anybody watching when they were making the movie to get things like that? Uh, this is another wonderful sample, too. This uh, movie doesn't feature any oops moments inside of anybody's accent for being from and or in Boston. Right. Uh, it is wonderfully pulled off. It's all very real. You don't have anybody that sounds fake. I, I, I can I can hear the words floating off of someone that was from the city of Boston. It's all very right there. Uh, that is a special kind of acting, but it's also a special kind of detail inside of the making of films that you've got to credit Clint Eastwood for. Right, yeah, I think he's a genius. I mean, they, they wrap you into the culture yes. of that yeah. city, and obviously they did a lot of research, just the attention to detail on some of the things. Yeah. I know we were talking before, you know, when they go in and they see the, uh, they follow up with the guy from the FBI, you know, just and hanging on his wall, I recognize the emblem <laughs> Of the plaque, you <laughs> yeah. know, it's from you know from the National Academy mm-hmm. uh, back there. So just the attention to detail was was very precise. Yeah, and I really enjoy that again because it provides you that submersion experience inside of a film instead of just hey I'm looking at the movie screen. Right. I love that. I love that. Why do you hate that kid? How many times has someone asked you that? You know, uh, the the mundane conversations that movies can have is something I would love to start making a database of because I I love it. It instantly submerges you, in this case, because there's also an accent that's incorporated through that entire scene from everybody around, but also a piece of uh, city culture, uh, community neighborhood culture that's clearly depicted there if it's not from the old guy, if it's not from the storekeep, if it's not from the guy that owns the store, i.e. Sean Penn, uh, you get this wonderfully, brilliantly, quickly painted picture, but that's all you need. You don't need any of the other periphery. That's the, the total showcase of quality filmmaking. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and even even just from the uh, the nicknames that they go over, and uh, <laughs> you know the awesome. and how they all intertwine, and yeah. the and the short, you know, and they do it in a short period of time. And the history, you know, they sum up the history of the various characters in the past and how they fit in. And they only they kind of give you bits and pieces of it. It doesn't come out right. It doesn't seem like it comes out right away. Why? Why I hate that kid? Well, he doesn't want to reveal all of that. Yeah. Right up front. Yeah. So they kind of spoon feed you into that, and um, I think it it makes the flow really well. Yeah, it pays off really wonderfully. Good. And for those of you that are curious, the guy that actually provided the consultation on the Bostonianisms of what's going on inside of this film is actually that assistant storekeep. He's the guy that they would go to and make sure that what they're saying is accurate and That's not terrible, and that's quality. I did I, not know that. Yeah, I love it when they will grab people usually from that area to supervise for lack mm-hmm. of a better term. Can you imagine going, Hey, Sean Penn, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> well, that, that's, that's, I love that. I love that's, that. That's exactly, you know, what we've done. We've done uh, book trailers and so forth. And mm-hmm. it's, it's easier to take cops yeah. and put them in this role yeah. than to take somebody, you know, an acting student or whatever and try to teach them to be a cop. Yeah. It's easier to just say, just to say, Hey, look, do what you do. Let's capture that. And it comes out well. Yeah, and it it pays off, and it again it provides way more layering that could be done that than could not be done right. if you didn't have somebody like that in place. Right. The banter of cops on scene, behind the scenes. So inside of this massively growing crime area, you have some uh, cops yucking it up, for lack of a better term. Sure. Does that happen? Absolutely accurate, mm-hmm. and you know on these scenes, these traumatic scenes, and these these things that. Uh, we deal with a lot of police officers deal with post-traumatic stress. Mm-hmm. And one of the defense mechanisms is to try to tell jokes when you're in these these terrible scenes. Now, the, the downside to that is somebody hears you, they're offended, 
you know, and they're like, wow, why are they so twisted in this twisted humor? They're in the middle of a serious scene and this is going to happen. But it's a it's an emotional defense mechanism. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's a coping and survival tactic that uh, the cops use. So, yeah, really accurate. On yeah. That. Well, I love that it's accurate. And actually, this is a great point to jump into what we are going to end up calling the hierarchy of what happens in a police department. Mm-hmm. Now, we realize uh, the, the scene that we're talking about, there are the there's the um, Massachusetts State Police detectives. Mm-hmm. There are the street cops, the guys that are in uniforms, yucking it up behind them. There are the crime techs that are putting all the pieces and parts in place. And then there's everyone else that's involved. And what I wanted to make sure we touched on was the hierarchy of how police organizations in general, we know there's always going to be differences, mm-hmm. but how police organizations work. So there's from the guy down on the bottom, the beat right. cop, I guess. Yep. You have the, you know, you have the, your patrol officers. Mm-hmm. And then above them, you'll have some type of uh, commander. It could be a corporal or sergeant. Mm-hmm. Above that, you'll have maybe a division commander at a lieutenant level. Okay. And then somebody who captures an entire area at a captain's level, and that's mostly in a you know bigger police department. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, you, you definitely have your hierarchy, your uh, chain of command, mm-hmm. and your ranks, and uh, – they all kind of fit together to. Uh, and so, where do detectives fall in that? Is that always just rank then, as opposed to de- what you do? A detective is somewhere between, typically, somewhere between your patrol officer and perhaps your first line supervisor, your sergeant. Mm-hmm. Is when that a they, choice that's made, or are people recommended to become a detective? How does that work? Yeah, typically, you know, from my experience, mm-hmm. they start as a patrol officer. Okay. They go through a career or a, a period of time where mm-hmm. they develop. You know the basic skills, and then they they have a knack for the investigative side, mm-hmm. and then they're promoted into the investigative side. So once they get on the scene, though, there are certain um, there's certain responsibilities and certain authority mm-hmm. that they have over you know certain other members of the department. So and they have to have that because it's their investigation. Mm-hmm. As as you saw, you know Lawrence Fishburne was a detective sergeant, mm-hmm. so. They also have ranks within the Bureau, too. Sure. It just depends. And it depends on the size of the department also. Yeah. Well, so. and I, again, I love the layers. And I know that it's something that a, a lot of people that are listening to the podcast have never even thought of. You just mm-hmm. think, oh, he's a, he's a detective. Right. But how does that work inside of the foundations and the mechanism that's inside of what is police investigation? Yeah. He probably, I find that terribly hypnotic. Exactly. He probably went through, you know. 10, 12, 15 years as a patrol officer Mm -hmm. before he got to that point. Mm -hmm. So when you're seeing Kevin Bacon as this seasoned detective, maybe he hasn't been a detective for two or three or four years. I Mm -hmm. mean, maybe it's a short period of time, Mm -hmm. but he's been a police officer for a long period of time. So he's had all these experiences. I love that. The question of being objective or not in an investigation this is going to come up a couple of times inside this movie. Sure. And the big one that you hauled off and right hooked it as you walked in this afternoon is clearly, without question, Kevin Bacon's character, Sean Devine, will be completely unobjective for investigating anything inside of this film. Yeah. It, ever. It's, you know, I mean, right off the bat, if, you know, if I'm the administrator and I know that he's got personal connections to... uh the victim's father and potentially a suspect. Mm-hmm. There's no way I have him investigate that case. Just you know, the liability. They're going to get him into court. I mean, this is a homicide case. Yeah. It's a murder case. So yeah. they're going to pull out all the stops with the defense. They're going to get him into court, and um, they're going to 
they're going to crucify him, get him on the stand, and try to just pick him apart, right? Because he has personal connections, and you know they may be successful at instilling reasonable doubt that you know the suspect committed the crime. Mm-hmm. So they touch on that. Lawrence Fishburne, you know, points the finger at him and says, "You're a liability." At one point, mm-hmm. kind of toying with, "Do I go up the chain of command and pull the plug on this guy?" You know, and kind of telling him, you know, you're testing the waters here. You're you're sticking up for your friend. You know, you're kind of shying away from this lead. And, of course, Kevin Bacon, in traditional cop sentiment, says, hey, look, there's no way, you know, I'm going to skimp out on this investigation. Yeah. If he's the guy that did it, I'm putting the handcuffs on him right now. Yeah. And that's exactly the defensive reaction that you're going to get. And and again, I love that because it provides at least a tiny little bit of realism inside of a situation that would not be real, where if anybody found out that there was something in the vein of being completely unobjective, right. that would be the first thing that would be mentioned and you'd be off the case. Right. I, yeah. I love that they mention it. The crime scene investigation banter. Is it there, Chris? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they find the body down in the culvert or whatever mm-hmm. it was. Yeah. You know, I, I liked the uh, the emotion. You know, Kevin Bacon, he sees the body, and it's kind of horrific. She's all beat up. You know, it was hit with a hockey stick. Mm-hmm. I guess her head's cracked open, or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it, he's going through that emotion, and they're building that as he's walking back or he's walking around mm-hmm. because he starts to realize, oh, man, I know the father. I know the family. And you can see the stress that it's causing him. Mm-hmm. He knows he's got to go back. He knows what uh, his friend is going to say and demand. And he's going through all of those emotional things as he's walking back. And um, What I also love inside of the, the picture of that scene that develops in, instantly in front of you, he already knows that the Savage Brothers are on site, right. who are the right-hand actors right. of of Sean Penn's character and you you can see the the wheels and gears in his mind going okay so what do we got to do to make sure that you know all hell doesn't break loose right Don't I love that you can see through. all of that right you can see it coming from a mile away again just wonderful portrayal inside of that scene in particular do you get along with the stadies and go Chris do you get along with the stadies the state police do we get along with the, do, <laughs> do we get along with the state police you know it it depends yeah. on the state yeah. police officer, just like just like everything else. There are some we get along with, and there are some we don't. Sure, um, but I could apply that to uh, life. Every other agency, that's right. Well, in life and people, yes. So, the horror of a discovery, a father's life shattered. Again, I get choked up every time I see and think about this scene. But you know, the, the unhinging. Of Sean Penn inside of this, yeah, it's a this it's, scene is just... it's a horrific scene. They and I know people. I I remember a friend of mine, acquaintance of mine, telling me, you know, I pulled down the street and I saw my wife's car, and it was, you know, it, there was this horrible accident scene, and then you discover that you know she was the one that died. You know, just a terrible scene. Yeah. Um, but they uh, they really play that out on that emotion. They you really know, do. And, and you know them restraining him. You know them. They, they want to be compassionate. The guy just lost his daughter, and yet they can't let him into that crime scene. Right. So, right. you know, it, yeah. it's just something that really tugs at the emotions. It really does. And the other neat part about this is that inside of that wonderful commentary, again, on the Blu-ray and DVD presentations, uh, the special edition ones, rather, um, 
what Kevin Bacon talks about is for those of you that don't know how a lot of movies or television shows are shot, you'll have a scene where there's a main camera capturing what you, what you're going to see. But then there has to be another shot again, not at the same time of what's going on on the other side. So what Kevin Bacon's reaction of everything that's going on and what was wonderful. And the, these are the stories I love to hear about someone like Sean Penn, because Sean Penn has a, an incredibly different political bend than I have. And I hate it when I have to temper that with some wonderful acting that I see. But what I, the stories I do love to hear about are ones like Sean Penn Presents here, where it could have just been where well, he's getting his shot and that overhead shot of him just screaming and becoming unhinged and being held down with the Savage Brothers from that, that top shot. It was it, it, I can just imagine it now, and it's terribly striking. But he did it again so that Kevin Bacon could have his take. And that's the story I want to hear. I want to, I want that passion and that, that exuding for getting the performance, but then also the giving nature that you get from that. He didn't have to do that. Kevin Bacon could have, Clint Eastwood could have just said, you know, remember what we just did? Well, I want you to try and remember that. Ready? Go. And that's not what happened at all. They did it again. And for such a scene where there's just a torn of emotion, and Kevin Bacon particularly mentions that he, he thought Sean Penn was going to have a heart attack. That's how hard he was going in both of them. That I love that. And it's what makes me revere someone like Sean Penn as an actor. It's just yeah, great stuff. It's great characterization and trying to develop those characters. And it's... it's uh... It's like in writing, and when you write, you develop a character, and you want that character uh, to come off to the audience mm-hmm. as as a bad guy. Yeah. So you make him or her detestable, <laughs> and as you're writing that, or as you're, I guess, as if it's in film, as you're shooting that, do you feel that emotion? Are you grabbing that emotion to where, man, I just... I can't stand this person. Wow. You know? Oh, it's one of the big giant negatives of green screen action that happens inside of modern day filmmaking. There's something to be said for there being something in front of you that you can interact with and touch. Sure. And it's one of the driving forces inside of the upcoming Star Wars films, the the now after the originals that are coming here inside of 2015. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason why these giant ships are actually being built. Right. As opposed to there being a giant green screen area where they get to envision things that they're seeing. Because everything bounces off that emotion, that right. environment, the, the environment that you're in. And me seeing that other actor going through that emotional distress is going to prompt me to act it better. One, it just it provides the performance instead of a performance. And I love that they talk about those things. And it's why I'm a total DVD commentary whore. Uh, I love to hear those little stories, especially the ones that give me a whole lot more beneficial uh, experience to someone like Sean Penn. I love that. Is the donut shop smack the lowest and most common blow for cops? Chris? You know, it's a... Uh... <laughs> It's a it's a pretty big cliche. Sure. And um, what you're saying after, is that you hate donuts. Then, no, right? no, no, no. A- actually, the you know, opposite. there's a donut shop right down the street. Twenty three years in law enforcement, <laughs> I will eat a donut in uniform. It does not matter to me. But I, I'm telling you, I have cops. They'll go, oh my gosh, I would never be caught dead taking a picture eating a donut in my uniform or anywhere else. You know, the cliche. I just avoid the donut shops. But I mean, look, let's face it. You want a bit of truth. We like the donuts. I mean, <laughs> sure. People donate them. We eat them. And the Two Guys Talking podcast is all about the donut truth. We're happy to provide it. Absolutely. <laughs> Distrust of the police. Mm-hmm. Now, 
you are definitively not a law enforcement officer inside of Boston slash South Boston slash outside right. the abandoned bear area right. inside this film. But how much distrust of the police is there? Well, however, I am a law enforcement officer 20 miles from Ferguson. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, bordering St. Louis County. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it just it varies from community to community. I mean, it. I'll you know, do you one better. I think it would, though I'm not a police officer. It would vary from person to person. Certainly. And I think that's it, what makes your job so amazing to someone like me, because for every person there is on the planet, there is also an opinion of anything that we talk about ever. Right. And one of the giant traits that I want to use this podcast in particular over at um, whatcopswatch.com mm -hmm. is to provide a human aspect of what cops think. Because right. as much as people see cops only as people in uniform with badges, depending on the type of uniform, you may be ready to, to storm downtown Germany. There's way more Absolutely. to cops than just the uniforms, the badges, and grabbing a gun. And being able to provide a, a good, solid human perspective, not just about what we think about a movie like Mystic River, right. but about the concepts that affect cops is what this is about. And it if you, really is. If you see, you know, if you could see behind the scenes and into the culture of law enforcement, mm -hmm. you know, we, we talked about Ferguson and St. Louis and such. These people that are in uniform, that are out there, you know, they are mothers and fathers and husbands and wives. Mm -hmm. And they do go through, I mean, I've seen them, they go through post traumatic stress, mm -hmm. things that they don't like to talk about. That's how our culture is. Our culture in the law enforcement realm does have this amount of paranoia because you're under the microscope so often. Sure. And I'm kind of an anomaly. I, I you know, I, I write, so I kind of get on, you know, podcasts and interviews. And yeah, I'll talk about my emotions. Mm -hmm. I'll let you know how it is. Sure. You know, it's uh, it's traumatic, you know, holding the dead baby. I mean, it's terrible, and it's something you'll never forget. Mm -hmm. But most police officers, they don't want to talk about that. It's, hey, you know, we just deal with it. We have a coping mechanism. And um, a lot of times it's detrimental. I've seen a lot of people go through a lot of bad things sure. because they won't deal with it. Yeah. And again, that is uh, one of my goals always is to educate. And I love that I get to couple with you and the people that we're going to bring in during whatcopswatch.com mm -hmm. and, and educate people across every perspective. That is a, a want, and I, I can't wait to deliver that to everybody. Whoops. We're going to talk about a lot of mistakes inside of this film. Not so much that you would ever recognize them, but very often inside of filmmaking. When a mistake is made, they cut, 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 uh, speed, sound, cycle back up, blah, whatever. That's what usually happens. Inside of, in particular, Clint Eastwood's movies, that's not what happens. And I think his movies are better for it, not because I heard that on the commentary, but because after hearing it on the commentary, you go back, I can't even imagine if they would have not had that inside the film. One of my favorite scenes for mistakes inside of this one is, uh, there's there's several, but the, the big one is you have uh, Jimmy and... Dave, i.e. Tim Robbins and mm -hmm. Sean Penn on the on the porch. Mm -hmm. And Dave walks outside not knowing that Jimmy is standing right behind him. And he goes to light up a cigarette. And Tim Robbins literally said, I grabbed three matches because Clint Eastwood shoots one take. Mm -hmm. He doesn't shoot multiple takes, which is another giant indicator of awesome. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to make sure that the match fired on the first strike. Well, the match fired, as did the other two, thereby exploding in his hand, you know, 
big giant fireball in his hand. And you'll see it. Those of you listening now can go back and listen or go back and watch that piece of the movie. And Tim Robinson thought, well, he's clearly just going to say, you know, screw that. We can't do that. But then he realized that they're not. And so he continued on with the scene. But it fits perfectly. It's like a magical puzzle piece. No. And it's a magical puzzle piece that is almost indicative of what Dave's character. I I envision Dave trying everything in life and it always getting screwed up somehow. Absolutely. And, and so it was so perfect there. Absolutely. It really was. And, you know, people are imperfect. People yeah. make mistakes. And yeah. I think that's what uh, Clint Eastwood adds to uh, a movie is the human factor yeah. of people being imperfect. Yeah. Another great one is they're, uh, they're giving Sean Penn's character the not quite the third degree, but the two and a half degree inside of that little coffee area, break room, whatever, inside the hospital. And they get to the the part about being in jail and blah. Well, that coffee cup spills. That wasn't intentional. That's whoop, Sean Penn blew it over. And it, it weren't one turned out wonderfully. Kevin Bacon talks about that one, about how that would have been in any other circle that cut wasn't out. Eastwood-based. Not only cut out, but never thought again and then redone. And that they were able to use that and even capture the part where they're trying to clean it up. You know, who would have ever thought of that? And that it adds into that human factor of the conversation is brilliant. The brilliance of movie magic. So which of the house scenes were in a real house and which weren't? Any idea? idea? No idea. And that's the magic. Because more than half of the scenes were never in a house. They were on a soundstage. Hmm. And I love that about filmmaking. uh, That you can turn a corner and... There's some other ungodly set of something else. I love that. It definitely uh, preys on my creative factor and juices, and it, it is amazing. And inside the commentary, they literally talk about which scenes were in a house and which scenes weren't in a house. Just amazing stuff. And then even a little bit of argument about was it in a house or not. And you know when you can fool the actors and they can't remember? <laughs> You've done it. You've done it. It's perfect. Yeah. Witness testimony. Uh, there's an old lady here who says, I was in my dressing gown that night. Mm-hmm. And the testimony that she gives, is that accurate for collecting you know, testimony where wit- it's she she remembers the little tiniest details. They have nothing to do with anything right. at all. And that is accurate because okay. people will tell you a lot more than you want to know. Okay. And the things that don't matter and so forth. <laughs> Witness testimony is one of the most unreliable sources of evidence. Interesting. That's why we don't we try not to go off of witness testimony. If I've got an autopsy, if I've got ballistics, if I've got DNA, you know, it's going to be a lot more reliable because mm-hmm. it doesn't have an opinion. It doesn't remember something different. It speaks more to the science and the truth. Right. Witnesses, a lot of, t- they have a perspective. So, you know, you, you may be getting what they believe is the truth, mm-hmm. but it might not be what happened. And a dressing gown. The witnessing of a completely dysfunctional family unit, i.e. Brendan's interrogation sitting at his uh, family's dinner table with mom standing behind him, stovepiping a couple of cigarettes in one hand. Uh, It is a singularly wonderful scene, but also at the same time knowing that's drawn on absolute someone's story as opposed to them inventing it out of someplace. Uh, But that you get to see a completely dysfunctional family where the son didn't care enough at all to tell his mom that he's going to get married, that he's going to leave and probably not see her for a long period of time. And her, her absolutely toxic environment Mm -hmm. that she grabs the piece of knowledge that she has, spins it up in her little casserole dish, puts it in the microwave, makes it even more toxic. Uh, 
I, I love seeing things like that, but I also know that they're sadly too way too real. Absolutely. It uh, uh, extremely real. You know, when you talk about how the dysfunctionality breeds more of it, mm-hmm. you know, you've got, I mean, if you go back, you've got the, the father that was, uh, you know, obviously, obviously robbed the, uh, what, liquor store? Liquor store way back when. Mm-hmm. Way back when. Mm-hmm. Um, he was killed off. I guess maybe did some time. I can't remember. But, and that just breeds that that family environment. And then you have mom sitting there saying, you know, eh, you're better off that your girlfriend's dead. Who cares? I mean, this girl was murdered. That She mm-hmm. has no compassion, no uh, sympathy. Right. And by the way, she's the byproduct of a thief. Right. Right. <laughs> I, 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 again, I singularly love that scene, but it's so tragic to think that that is the scene. Absolutely. Celeste's growing doubt. You know, what What can you say about the portrayal of Celeste here by actress? Marsha Gay Harden here is extraordinary because it goes from just being a caring mother, making sure that her son is asleep, but staying awake because she just wants to make sure that her husband's okay. Uh, knowing right. that he tends to stay out late, but my God, it's three o'clock. Right. And she is amazed when he gets home. But then she's even more amazed to know he may have killed somebody. Right. And this growing tension and doubt and you you can see her making up the imagery inside of her mind as the as the the story continues to play along and what's even better at the end is that the horror continues to mount right because she doesn't know where the hell dave is right and wait a second he didn't do it wait a second and all of that i love all of the layering again and just one character that's ma- it's just magical for me. And her her depiction, her body language and such, um, she uh, she really does a good job at portraying, you know, her her suspicion and her, um, you know, even her lack of uh, truth telling, you know, lack of veracity when she speaks to Kevin Bacon outside. You know, mm-hmm. he he comes up and talks to her, and you know, she she looks down, she looks away, she starts thinking about all the things she's extremely obvious that she knows some things she's not going to tell him and you can see the wheels turning in her head as she puts this together oh my gosh maybe my husband murdered this girl yeah the the scene where she tells jimmy you know essentially dave murdered your your daughter (laughs) (laughs) is mind-boggling and a wonderful portrayal again by one of a gaggle of actors that was just fantastic inside of this does anyone know what a hand looks like after it's been in a garbage disposal? Because I'm envisioning something way more horrific than anything Less that fingers, we see on... <laughs> you know, thing, things like that. Is, well, and like mangle. Uh, right, you know, right. not where I'm punching somebody or punching a wall. I'm thinking a little bit more meaty. Right, not uh, functional. Uh, right, and I realize... Uh, you know, it's Dave making shit up. <laughs> right. Outright. Just he right. uh, got my hand stuck in a garbage disposal. Right. Okay. He's making it up on the fly. And yeah. he caught on to it pretty quick. <laughs> well, and not only quick, but I mean, it sinks him. Right. You, you can only tell so many stories in a, a small amount of time, and then everything starts to stack up, in particular for Marsha Gay Harden inside this. Layering a story through a bottle of Jack. So we get to the liquor store. Right. Uh, this character actor is outstanding for one, but what I wanted to make sure we talked about was his story and that story being conveyed as an eyewitness, not from something that happened several days ago, but tens of years ago. Right. I mean, is that something you'd, you'd see and or hear in general with the detail you know, and the storytelling and, oh, hey, about my shotgun? 
it, yeah, it's possible, you know, and he's got to he's got to show the two detectives a shotgun, and uh, you know, as he brings it out, they have the typical response of, "Oh, wait a minute, you're putting me in a bad spot here. <laughs> yeah. Please don't touch the gun. Please put that <laughs> yeah. down." You know, he's an older guy. He's offended that they called him senile. You know, yeah, it. I can see it. Yeah, I, I thought it was great, and again, the character portrayals of somebody inside, in particular, a city like Boston, are always fun, and the storytelling that works and weaves yet another layer into this movie makes it all the better. The value of a neck tattoo in law enforcement eyes. So let's talk about neck tattoos, Chris. Would you okay. like to see mine, by the way? No, uh, I'm good. Okay, good. <laughs> what does a neck tattoo? And I get that it's a stereotype. I get that it's a sni- it's a snap decision. But everybody is made of snap decisions. So you know, t- I guess tattoos in general, um, and it's not just the police that do this, but people in general look at a tattoo and say, "Wow, oh, is that a uh, uh, is that a prison tattoo? Is that uh, is that significant of somebody that I should I should stay away from? You know, mm-hmm. I should be fearful of." Now, tattoos are becoming more popular. Sure. You know, over the way last, more what, commonplace. 10 years. Yes. So maybe that's kind of going by the wayside. But as far as a cop's perspective, yeah, I, I'm looking for those tattoos that say, hey, I've, I've been in prison. Mm-hmm. You know, hey, I've done some time. Uh, hey, I'm part of a gang or I'm affiliated with. And you would think that if you were part of a gang, you wouldn't want the police to know that. Right. It's instant. But, it's instant uncamouflage. Right. But that's that's <laughs> not what we see. So. <laughs> no, it's not. And it's something that you can predicate. Uh, predicate an activity on and with right and so it falls into a variety of buckets that you guys have right and that's why i vote for no on the whole neck tattoo thing. right bad idea the smells of your father's now obviously i'm not referring to the ones you'd probably not want to talk about i'm talking about the ones where i smell my dad's aftershave regularly because i've started wearing it uh, skin bracer is what my dad always brings with him and he always has had with him and i enjoyed it so much the last time he stopped in i went and bought myself a little plastic bottle of skin bracer there you go and it, it instantly when i wake up in the morning and i shave and a little bit of a splash and i instantly smell my dad and it's a little brightness to my day thinking of my dad and it's that smell that brings back some memory or puts yeah, you oh, yeah. in uh, some nostalgic you know uh, environment oh yeah. and you know, they paint that into the movie when he talks about his dad's, you know, smells like dentine. And yeah. It's it's not cliche. It's not something, you know, they, they pick this unique thing mm-hmm. that uh, that is unlike, you know, anything else. And it denotes his dad. And it's it's another way to, uh, that's, in my opinion, brilliant characterization yeah. to relate to this emotion, you know, relaying that emotion that that kid has with his dad. Yeah, so. and what I also love is that without ever seeing and only knowing, really, we know that his last name, we know his last name, but knowing that it's just Ray, mm-hmm. we are able to begin painting a picture because of the detail that they give. Right. Another with, giant hallmark plus for any movie that does it. Right, without ever seeing him. Right. You instantly conjure the guy that hung out hung out with Sean Penn's character right. and the nefarious folk who has at least $10 and change in his pockets at all times right. who jingles like crazy and will be nice enough that if his son guesses how much even if he's close he's going to give him that money and that he's dead mm-hmm. in the river someplace and has the grin on his face after he's robbed the liquor store the liquor store right I, I i love all of that and being able to paint characters when you never see them and only get just a select few details Again, brilliant story writing. 
the echo of getting in a car and looking back to survey another site of Dave's end again. So Dave gets into the back of the car with the Savage Brothers this time, and it's almost a one-to-one shot perspective. The the cameras crashed in a little bit further, Mm -hmm. but it is literally one-to-one with him even glancing backwards, this time not wearing a Boston Red Sox hat. And it's it's wonderful. It 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 is almost a bookend, except that it's not the end of anything. But he is witnessing his own beginning of his own end. Right. Love it. I love Dave, that. And Dave was, you know, Dave was the ultimate victim. I mean, he was victimized <laughs> from the very beginning to the very end. You know, being falsely accused. Um, you know, being taunted. You you see the trauma unfold in his mind yeah. as he comes across the pedophile. Mm-hmm. You know, and relives. You know the uh, horrific uh, abduction and mm-hmm. molestation and things like that. So yeah, he he was the he was the victim from beginning to end. How can you not feel sorry for this guy? We'll talk about something else that's really important as the film ends in regard to the speed of the different scenes that you see snap before you. A focus on language. So did they get it right here inside of the cop language that's used in a variety of not just the interrogation scenes, duh. But the, what I always love to see is the banter that is not a piece of police procedure anywhere, but the banter that you'll get between law enforcement officers and themselves. Do they get that right inside of this? You know, I think so. Yeah. You know, it, I think that because um, you see that rise, that rise in emotion where they clash and they, they disagree. And, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, there, there's a challenge that's thrown out, just like we talked about before, where... You know, Lawrence Fishburne says, you're a liability. And he says, wait a minute, you're questioning, you know, my dedication to the badge. Mm-hmm. No, no, don't go there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and yeah, it. I think that um, I think that the language was accurate. Um, you know, unfortunately, there's obscene language that goes around. I, sure. would, I would be lying if I didn't say that, <laughs> that, you know, in the sure. middle of a squad room that they're because there's a lot of emotion that comes sure. out, you know, and you're, you're sure. dealing with uh, detectives that are working a horrific homicide. Mm hmm. You know, it's 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 going to unfold like that. Yeah, yeah. The not-so-gory side of movie making. Now, we're going to be talking about a lot of other movies that do, I would say, feature gore, but they definitely show gore. And what I loved about this film, especially because it's a, you know, a wonderful Clint Eastwood showcase, is that you don't have to have, you know, drippy blood or uh, seeing somebody get poked in the eye with a very sharp implement or... Uh, someone being shot in the head and a piece of their forehead coming apart. You don't have to have any of that inside of this film. Even a a kid being molested, you get none of that. You get some very nuanced, no, not again, uh, shadow that walks over them and they snap to black. You have it where the, the mind gets to do the work. And that's another giant tenet of really great filmmaking, in my opinion. And I appreciate that. I, I actually don't like a lot of, uh, horrific scene, you know, gory scenes and bloody yeah. scenes and i've i've seen them live yeah and um it's not you know it's not where i would go for entertainment and i i appreciate that in this movie and the talent that they have where they can bring about uh, a thought process without actually showing that um i thought i thought it was really good i think that adds to the movie i think it does too and the ability to uh, run through this film and pop out the F-bombs and the words that probably shouldn't be there anyway. Being able to remove those things and convey that to a different audience, mm-hmm. even a younger audience than probably expected, 
I call it a, I call it a score. Mm-hmm. I want it to be represented, but it, it's great that it's not super bloody. Right. The Black Emerald Bar is closed. For those of you wondering, the bar at the end of this film is closed. It is no longer open. There's actually a tour, however, of famous Boston sites inside of Boston movies that we'll link to inside the show notes for this episode over at twoguystalking.com forward slash Mystic River. Be sure you check it out because there's all kinds of different places from a variety of feature films and television shows that were either shot or talked about shooting inside of Boston. And the list is always growing. There's always something that you didn't know was either shot in Boston or where it was shot in Boston that you can go and visit right now. The speedy switch between scenes with Brendan and Sean as a roller coaster end. Ah, these are these are wonderful scenes where you're watching the demise of Dave snap between what's going on with Brendan, snap between what's going on after after Kevin Bacon and Lawrence Fishburne show up to accost the kid. All, that wonderful pacing towards the end of the film, especially the slower pace with the almost slow motion parade that's going on at the end. I love all of that. It makes a wonderful, not quite an end, but more of a pondering that happens at the end of the film. Right. And they, the switching back and forth, they do it in such a fashion that you don't lose anything from either scene. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm still getting the emotion that Dave's going through. I'm still getting the, you know, he's pleading for his life, the knife. And then we have Kevin Bacon and Lawrence Fishburne at gunpoint from the kid who's bleeding from his mouth. Mm-hmm. I mean, both dramatic scenes, mm-hmm. both, uh, you know, high-stress scenes, but yet we don't lose anything from going back and forth. Well, what I also realize, and it, again, it's a piece of the chemistry set that happens inside of two guys talking to them, is that, I don't know if everybody realizes this, but the snapping between those scenes, it's because, in reality, they're ha- happening at the same time. Right. So they're going in to grab the kids and make sure that that all gets wound up. But at the same time, Dave's getting killed. Right. And so it works as you come to the next scene where you have Kevin Bacon pulling up to drunkard, not really sorry, but sad that he had to kill the dude, uh, Sean Penn, sitting in front of the place where they all watch Dave disappear. Right. But watch him disappear way back when he was a kid. And if the pacing, if the pacing is any different, though, I think that you you may lose. Like if it, if it goes on too long on one scene, you forget about perhaps what happened. Yeah. At the other scene, mm-hmm. but I think they get it right. Yeah, I really which, do. Which has got to be difficult. To yeah. Do. Well, and imagine how I, I always wonder how long scenes are actually shot, mm-hmm. and you know that in both of those scenes there was way more shot than they actually used. But the again, the wonder of an editor inside of a feature film is another giant step up for technology. And uh, again, that pace, pace will trump everything. Something that we always talk about inside of two guys talking to them is that pace will trump every problem that there is. It's just a matter of what kind of problems and how many problems there are. Kind of like the following. Right. (laughs) The following is a perfect sample of how, no matter how awesome the pace would be, even though there were many times that pace did help, there are definitive storylines that cannot possibly be overcome. What about that 911 tape, Chris? You know, I like that part. They they really flushed that out. Mm -hmm. They went back and they listened to that tape. And, you know, one of the things... I attended the uh, FBI National Academy back in uh, 2003. Yeah, and when uh, this movie was made. When this movie was made. <laughs> and one of the things, you know, I went through a course, interview and interrogation with statement analysis with their behavioral science unit. Yeah. And one of the things they look at, you know, when you're looking for veracity and deception is uh, the parts of speech. And I think this was a, 
this was a, an indicator, you know, that, you know, you look at the different, uh, it's like an English class, your nouns, pronouns, sure. etc. And Kevin Bacon nails it where he says, oh, no, wait, he says her. Wait a minute. He's not talking about his name. And the dispatcher even goes back and tries to clarify that. Mm-hmm. And just the uh, the words that that kid's u- the kid uses when he's on the 911 tape where he says, says something like, it's... Uh, we were just here. We just we just found her, or something like that, mm-hmm. and it doesn't fit. Mm-hmm. You know, it 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 flushes out that that indicator that maybe he's not telling the truth, or maybe there's something more to the story, and it fits. It really does fit with you know good investigative work. So I I enjoyed that portion. I thought it was uh, really accurate, and I thought it really added to the real police procedural aspect of the movie. The soundtrack. Now, I've never been quiet about when a soundtrack inside of either a feature film or a television program reaches me, touches me, and uh, allows me to be even more woven into the storytelling of what you have inside of, in this case, a feature film. And this one is obviously no exception because you get all kinds of that. Yeah, Chris, the the storytelling here is augmented by by the soundtrack. And as usual, you can always go to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network website and buy the soundtrack of any of the soundtracks that are featured inside of Perspective Reviews that we go over. This one in particular is special because it has a couple of tracks by Clint Eastwood himself that really are to be remembered. We've loaded them here in the background of this particular segment, as well as peppered through the the rest of the review so that you can understand a little bit about that soundtrack that you can buy now over at twoguystalking.com forward slash mystic river. Again, a stellar piece that really does add flavor and texture to an outstanding film. running a little bit long here during the two guys talking perspective review of mystic river 2003 directed by clint eastwood we'll be right back things in 1982 were a lot more simple bmx bikes the versailles apartment complex in schumburg illinois the sweet innocent kiss of andrea schaefer and of course a little film from a man named Steven Spielberg called E.T. Science fiction, the detail of a broken but still together family, the relationships that were made when you were 12, ones that are never again truly realized. It seems a lot heavier than most remember, but all of these things and more await you in the Two Guys Talking Perspective Review of Steven Spielberg's E.T. 1982 on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Check it out now at twoguystalking.com. That's the number two, guystalking.com. Blood, a dark passenger. The binding ties of clear plastic. They're not just hallmarks of the hit Showtime television program, Dexter. Their bullet points talked about each week on the Dexter podcast from Two Guys Talking. Don't miss out on killer dialogue that leaves you with a bloodlust for more. It's the Two Guys Talking Dexter podcast for Dexter fans. Find out more now at twoguystalking.com. That's the number two 
guystalking.com. S.H.I.E.L.D. was introduced in 1965 in an edition of Strange Tales featuring Nick Fury. It was billed inside comic books as the greatest action thriller of all time. And it's safe to say that secret acronym international intelligence collection endeavors would never be the same. Another, even greater episodic series is ready to take the greatest action thriller of all time mantle. And we hope you'll be listening. Don't miss the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. podcast, reviewing each and every episode of ABC's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. bullet point by bullet point. Check it all out right now at agentsofshieldpodcast.com. That's agentsofshieldpodcast.com. This is Officer Melissa Doss with the St. Peter's Police Department, and you're listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Everyone, welcome back to the Two Guys Talking Perspective Review of Mystic River 2003, directed by Clint Eastwood, starring a cavalcade of actors that include Sean Penn, Tim Robbins, Lawrence Fishburne, and Kevin Bacon. Just as every movie has the good, there's also the bad. Two Guys Talking Mystic River. So not surprisingly, like many other perspective reviews inside of Two Guys Talking to them, there's not a whole lot of bad to be had inside this film. One that we did find, however, was only one glove and trouncing a crime scene. Now, I know I'm totally biased because when I look at crime scenes inside of television and movies, I want several things to happen. One, I want there to be a photographer snapping pictures of everything first. Two, I want two gloves on everybody that's going to go anywhere near a crime scene. Three, I don't want to see somebody walk in and trounce a crime scene when no one else is, there's no pictures being taken, nobody else is there, it's a new pristine crime scene. You don't have a law enforcement officer going into a place, I guess maybe maybe to make sure they're not dead, I guess would be the, the one. Yeah. But when Sean Devine comes to the abandoned bear area, zoo nest, whatever, when he gets there, he grabs a log and he grabs a side of the of, of the cement that's there and he jumps down in the hole. Then he reaches around and snaps on one glove. Okay, how about two right. gloves? How about not touching anything near the body at all? Because if you are going to pummel her with a hockey stick, are you not going to hold on to something and then whack her with a stick or shoot her or whatever? And you're probably going to have the gloves on back in the at the car with the blood in the car and so on and so forth so yeah you know it it, it probably starts before then yeah and it, it is a definitive nitpick and uh, we get hundreds of email usually during all of our television review stuffs mm-hmm. about us being nitpicky but when you go to the length to make a movie that's this awesome how big a deal is putting on two gloves and leaving them on during a series of scenes uh, especially when uh, there's another behind the scenes not quite mistake thing there is a guy that is uh, the first guy to greet Sean Penn's character as he comes up and then eventually later the cops part and you can he can see his daughter's car well that guy he's actually eating a bag of M&Ms and that guy during a series of takes actually there there's a piece of the M&M bag that he tears off with his mouth and then he spits it out and eats a couple of M&Ms. Well, he would do that every take. So if you're going to go to the level of that detail, I vote you put on two gloves at the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's, you know, it, 
I guess in the in the bigger picture, yeah, that's probably nitpicky. Mm-hmm. I glossed over that. Sure. You know, I mean, it 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 didn't really uh, affect me that much, where I actually you know picked up on that too much. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, as, as far as uh, reality goes, you're probably going to have two gloves on. Now, with that said, you know what? It absolutely there could be a uh, reason why you know he runs up on the scene. He's got all this stuff going on the in the background. It could be legitimately explained. Mm-hmm. You know, he just didn't think to put those gloves on. He didn't go through the car that much. He's got the crime scene techs that are going to do that. Uh, maybe they already snapped pictures uh, before he got to the car. There's culvert. your other fix. So, maybe they've already snapped the pictures. You know, it it's, you can go in now, It could be explainable. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, it's again, it's uh, it's one of those nitpicks and something that we have to desperately pull out of something that was a great movie. Sure. Two guys talking. Mystic River. Being objective. Now, they used it as a wonderful storytelling lace inside of this movie. Mm -hmm. But the question of perspective, I think you and I can both say, no doubt, there's no way they'd have Sean Devine being the the front end of this investigation. I don't think so. I mean, it's a, uh, like we talked before, it's a murder scene. You know, I mean, you're going to go into court. Um, and you have, you know, you go through the investigation and one of your suspects, he knows from being a kid. And he's also, he also knows the father of the victim. He's emotionally attached. Yeah. Uh, um, excuse me, uh, Detective Devine, I was wondering when you were 12 years old, right. did you let the suspect into the back of a car where he was raped and molested? Just right. curious. Right. And, and I see. Get and off that the being stand. said, right. right. That being said, you don't like him. You're setting him up. You want him to go to prison. So yeah, I think they take him, they take him off the case right off the bat yeah yeah two guys talking mystic river a big old box of evidence thud (laughs) not not many things stood out in the movie where i would have said hey this doesn't make sense because everything fit pretty well i mean it it was realistic especially with the pace it was realistic yeah and um but the one thing you know one of the things that stood out other than the objective uh, part of Sean Devine not, you know, taking the investigative role against his friends is they're in the middle of this interrogation. And this is one of the prime suspects. And they're in the <laughs> interrogating room. And then somebody all of a sudden brings this box of evidence and he sets it down on the table. And they're like, hey, what's this? And I can understand it if it's, uh, say, that's staged to help you with that interrogation. I bring in the box and I say, hey, Here's your fingerprints that you wanted, or here's the DNA that you wanted. And then I turn to the suspect and go, are you sure you don't want to talk? You know, I stage it. I didn't really get that. And maybe that was the intent. Or like you said, maybe that was the intent because they had to carry it back to the office to talk about the 911 tape yeah. after that. Yeah. I, I think but, it was more a story crutch that way, but I, I'm with you. I don't, you don't, you wouldn't bring a box of evidence, <laughs> set it down in front of the suspect, you know, show your hand. Yeah, why don't you look through this for a minute? Let yeah. me open the bags for you so Tell you can me touch you everything. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm totally with you on that one completely. Two guys talking, Mystic River. The $150,000 comic book collection. Yeah, wow. Now, let me explain some background quick. I have been collecting comic books, or I had been collecting comic books, since I was about nine. And so I have a lot of comics, still, to this day, that I've not sold off. And the reason I didn't want to sell them is not so much because they are a treasure trove. I have some reasonably valuable comics. Uh, I've probably spent $150,000. But whether or not my collection is worth $150,000... 
I'm going to vote no. <laughs> That'd be a lot of books. Yes. And so that is mentioned inside of here. And believe me, there are comic books, in particular several that I can think of off the top of my head, that are worth, on their own, one book, $150,000. I just screamed that doesn't actually happen in humankind <laughs> inside of this story. It was one of the very few details that was rattled off and mattered inside of that, especially that testimony, where they're trying to explain how all of the pieces, parts fit how they all got put into prison and why Jimmy went away and why Ray did blah. And so it's a reasonably important piece because it's supposed to be important because it's $150,000. I just think you could have picked something other than a comic book collection. I, I get that that sounds innocuous. And so the, the, the thugs wouldn't go, wow, it's worth $150,000. We can sell it for $10,000. Man, we score a deal. Except that the number, the, the cost of the actual thing inside of somebody's insurance documentation now elevates the crime to something way larger than they ever would have thought. And, and maybe it was, I, I mean, I'm trying to, trying to run through my mind, you yeah. know, why, what the reason, what's the motive yeah. for picking comic books. But, you know, I, the only thing that I had come up with is, well, they wanted to dumb this character down. Yeah. You know, he, he's not a brain surgeon here. He's the he, guy that uh, goes and boosts he, stuff, he, he, period. Yeah, right. Trades in $150,000, or he steals $150,000 worth of comics. And then, you know, he gets in the uh, truck with the cigarettes and drives it across the state lines, which he doesn't even know that that constitutes, you know, this federal violation and gets jammed up like that. He's just stupid. Yeah. Yes, I agree with that totally. That's where we ask you, did you find any negatives or bads inside this film? Let us know what you think by going over to our website. That's twoguystalking.com forward slash Mystic River. Fill out the quick contact area on the right-hand side of the page. Let us know what you think about the bads that we missed inside of Mystic River. So we come to the part of the Two Guys Talking perspective review of Mystic River where we rate this film. Mystic River, 2003, directed by Clint Eastwood, starring a cavalcade of awesome. For those not familiar with the Two Guys Talking Perspective Review scale, we have one in the doldrums, sleeping with the fishes, if you will, all the way up to ten, all kinds of Boston awesome. Uh, seven is a standard film, and then you add on and take off, depending on the negatives and positives you see. Uh, knowing that, and no half numbers, Chris, what do you give Mystic River? Well, based on writing, the directing, the producing, the acting, uh, it would be probably an eight mm -hmm. or a nine mm -hmm. um, because those are just fantastic. Mm -hmm. With that said, as I had explained before, it's not where I would go for entertainment because of it's so realistic. And, and it, I, it, I, I want everyone to drink that in for a moment because of the things we've talked about tonight, in particular in the preamble. I find that incredibly interesting. Mm -hmm. The the I wouldn't go there for entertainment. I will always remember that from now on when I'm watching something that has anything any interest for me at all. In fact, The Departed is one of our coming up here's, mm -hmm. and that's another one that I'm guessing probably wouldn't scream awesome to you because there's all kinds of cop shooting, cop death in it. There's all kinds of swearing. There's all kinds of illicit goings on that are all negative outright, and so I I totally get that. Right. That is a that that is a again a light bulb moment that I don't usually have inside of these. Right, and it, you know it's it's I've seen I've seen things like this. They made it so realistic that you know I've seen cases. I deal with um, you know I oversee the investigative division. You know I look at the child molestation cases, and it's it's like something that you know I don't want to relive. I don't want to yeah. see again. I don't want to go to for entertainment. Hey, give me you know some fantasy adventure. Give me the. Uh, 
the uh, Marvel comic, mm-hmm. you know, give me fiction. Sure. And um, but like I said, great acting, mm-hmm. great uh, production, great direction. It's it was a good movie. So an eight is an excellent score for Mystic River. I kind of look at this movie as one of the many movies that I love to put in behind me when I'm working. Uh, I, again, I take cues on what I what I hear and can then relate to what I would usually be seeing. But it is an excellent process movie for me to put in behind me, literally, have it play while I'm working because I I can anticipate what's coming, and I'll always grab something small out of when I'm listening again. And it, and and this time is a really great sample because while listening to the commentary over what I've already heard tens if not twenty times. You really do get more perspective on how this movie was made and how awesome it was. In particular, the interaction between uh, director Clint Eastwood and the two actors that are showcased here, uh, Tim Robbins and Kevin Bacon. It is extraordinary and a must listen if you are at all a fan of this. Uh, Considering that, I was going to give this also an eight, but I have to jack it up to a nine. This is one of the quintessential Boston crime movies that I think everybody should see, regardless of whether or not you like the actors, if you like the storylines, but in particular, if you don't want to be involved with films that include child molestation. I wouldn't call this a child molestation movie. There's a significant piece of it. I would say it's probably more a child molestation victim film. Right. Because you get all kinds of that showcased here with Dave up and down the spectrum of while he's a victim. Yeah. 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 And then then even in the end, how it's passed along, his kid is sitting on the float. He's wrecked. And he's wrecked. Mm -hmm. You know, the wife is a mess. Mm -hmm. And uh, for the most part, it turns out bad for everybody except (laughs) Kevin Bacon. Yeah. Well, and I I think you have to wonder about that, too, because while Kevin Bacon knows, uh, you and I talked about this as we watched the, the end of it this evening. He knows his buddy's good for a murder. You know, at least one. Right. If not more because of the digging that he has done. Right. You know, the the, uh, the character actor cop that they go and they get inside of the divisional office of the Stadies, wherever. They go and they talk to him and, you know, he, he kind of says, well, you know, Ray got out and two months after he got out, disappeared off the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. You make the call. Yeah. Okay. So there's another one. Right. And Dave just happens to disappear the night that, you know. <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the scene at the end is, is nearly a confession. Yeah. You know, where, yeah. where they're talking at the end, you know, when did the when was the last time that you saw Dave? Yeah, you know, 25 Dave years Boyle, ago. Yeah, Dave Boyle, when was the last time you saw him? You know, and then Kevin Bacon follows up. Are you going to send his wife $500 a month also? I mean, it's you nearly have that confession there. You've yeah. got enough to bring that guy in. Yeah. Oh, and that's where I'm going, too, is that Kevin, obviously, or at least not that we see. I suppose it could happen later. But Kevin Bacon's character does not instantly then put the cuffs on him and no. throw him in the clink. Nope. Uh, outright, he doesn't. Uh, you even have the, the wife placating the king right. of, of the Boston neighborhood that they're in. Right. Uh, and I love that. I, again, it's more weaving of the storyline, even after the main story is done. And I love that. It, it elevates the film even again after it, the story is over. Uh, just a really great piece. And that's where we ask you what you would give this film. Mystic River, 2003, directed by Clint Eastwood. Uh, what score would you give? Let us know what you think by going over to our Facebook presence. That's facebook.com forward slash two guys talking. That's the number two guys talking. Start a new thread there and talk about Mystic River or respond to the ones that have already been started and let us know what you think. So until next time, I'm Mike Wilkerson, one of your hosts. And I'm Chris DiGiuseppe, the other host. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
This is the end of your tour of duty. Another episode of What Cops Watch has been filed in records. But another scene is taking shape. So many dirtbags, so little time. Check back again soon to whatcopswatch.com and join us back in the squad room for your next assignment. Don't be late. This isn't a request. Are you a cop? You want to tell us about what you watch and why? Contact us by visiting whatcopswatch.com. There you can interact with us on Facebook and Twitter, subscribe to us via iTunes, and get regular briefings directly from your duty sergeant. Thanks for listening, and remember, after your tour of duty, hang up your duty belt, grab some coffee, kick back in that recliner, and listen to the next episode of whatcopswatch.com.